0: I just got a lot to say. All right, so... Um, it open, you... What's that? It open? Um, I'll grab it, actually. So, um, so reviewing uh, Ryle, thoughts on... Uh, has anyone ever actually read or heard of J.C. Ryle before I gave you this assignment? Have you oh, guys heard, heard Okay. Yeah. All right, it's so my son's middle name. Calvin's middle name is Ryle, for right. reason. I love J.C. Ryle. So, um, so, anyway, so thoughts about, not necessarily the content, though that obviously is very very intriguing, um, style, stylistically, I guess, is my, my question, when you learn from some of his methods. I like the repetition of a lot of his questioning, you know? Yes. Just repeated throughout that whole thing. It's like bang, bang, bang. And then go for a little bit, bang, bang, bang. Yep. Yeah, he has a way of walking walking away going, okay, I know exactly, I know the topic. Like, <laughs> I got it. He repeats a lot, a lot of questions, which is really what I love about him. Is the, the questions? He has a ton of questions. You gonna know say? I just, he, he, you know, he kind of had three main points, but then within his, he had like eleven subpoints. Right? What his holding is holding It was. It's like yeah. eleven subpoints. points like, yeah, it gets a little taxing he's breaking it down. <laughs> uh, that's that's still he, he's after the Puritans, but very Puritanical in his uh, his teaching approach. <laughs> I wouldn't suggest that for for us um, as giving 11 sub points. It can be yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, 15 sub points, one point per minute. Yeah, I did like the way he did Kind of, I the way he threw up what he perceived to become objections, and then he mm-hmm. kind of answered them. Yep. You know, he did, he did that kind of repeatless mm-hmm way of dealing with some Yeah, historically, he's one of the first guys I've ever seen in reading who really masters both the, the questions but just the anticipation, even that whole anticipation of objections that he's, he's think He really thinks through what is his audience thinking or anticipating based on what he says, which is a really key method of communicating. If you can anticipate what they're going to think um, and answer it, that's, that's really powerful. He's really good at that. I thought the overall, it was more... Factual and appealing to logic, and less of the, you know, Jonathan Edwards or some of the, the yes. phraseology and the. Yes. He's not going to be as a, as yeah. picturesque, yeah. Well, it was, it was um, or, or so even as much second, second. Well, not as much second person as Edwards would be, but, but he yeah. to the logic. Of it. Yes. It's still very sound logical arguments. Yes. Kind of, you know. Right. What about the? Um, did you get? Did you get a chance to listen to the three different preachers of your choice and kind of compare them on the same passage? That's a no. No, no. no? no yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll just leave it to you then. You know, you can just do it sometime. <laughs> it, is, it is a fun exercise. Hey, guys, the the uh, packets are up here. I don't have a table in the back today. So uh, we were just talking about Ryle, and now we just kind of transitioned to our, our uh, three expository sermons to listen to. And uh, no one will actually finished that project, I guess. So it's you know, hard to find the, the, the same is. sermon for yeah. three guys. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. But as you have time to do it, it really is a good exercise to kind of just learn how different guys approach a given text yeah. and yet stay faithful to the text. Is uh, is uh, it, it really helps you kind of walk away going, okay, the, the Word of God is is really deep. And there is so many, it's like a diamond, you kind of it's, it's been around different angles of it. And there's just so many different places you can major on even. And given, I mean, I've preached the same sermon more than once in a different context, and the sermon's been almost structurally completely different just based on the audience and the need and the time and all that has kind of forced me to kind of turn around and shift some things and change it so um so you'll find that that happening all right well we are um class four and uh five here we'll finish this up and then six and seven are our last two which we'll be doing our our messages and uh as i put on on um Uh, The hub, you'll see kind of detailed out who's going when and what order and how much time you got. Any questions about that? Before you guys came in, they were asking, was I going to sign a passage? And I said, no, I'm not signing you a passage. You could choose anywhere in Scripture. It needs to be expository, though. So I mean, I don't want you to do a topical one. I don't want you to kind of pick random verses and kind of just, obviously, you're welcome to teach that way. But for this class, I want you to kind of just put your nose in a passage and kind of just pick it apart a little bit and present it. Okay. I was going to do, just do Jesus there you go. There you go. <laughs> hey, uh, Ryle did a sermon on. Um, oh, oh, what was what was Ryle? Ryle did a, a whole sermon on the um, uh, Lot's wife? Remember Lot's wife. is what it's called. Remember Lot's wife, because that's all that verse says in Luke. Remember Lot's wife. We should turn to pillow salt. That's this whole sermon was that 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 verse, that one verse. Remember Lot's wife. And of course, there was like ten sub-points. subpoints. J.C. Ryle. I know a guy who has that tattooed in his arm. <laughs> yeah. uh, remember, remember Lot's wife. <laughs> really he's a Christian, but he's a missionary. It's like, like, funny. That's the first time. It's I It's good, good to remember. Yeah. In in the book uh, in Ryle's Ra- book, Holiness, there's a chapter called "Remember Lot's Wife," and it's a whole sermon that's on just that. Just that. That guy. That, that sermon was long. Yes, that's what we we're talking about. So I don't recommend necessarily his methods of, of oh, right multiple sub-points. That would get you probably a little lost. But yeah, it was very good. Yeah, just, I like his, we talked about his, his ability to ask questions, his ability to t- anticipate the objections and answer them of his audience. Like the, Some real good methods in terms of what he does there. When did, when did he live? He was a contemporary of Spurgeon. He was, okay. And Spurgeon, uh, Patton, uh, mid-1800s, a lot of those... The, the missionary movement, chick carry all those, they were all about the same okay. time period. And um, Ryle was in Liverpool, England. George Mueller was in, um, I forgot what part of that, and you had Spurgeon, of course, in London. So you, what was that? Bristol? Was it Bristol he was in? Yes, he was. George Mueller, Bristol. That's the name of his biography. <coughs> yeah, that's right. And, and so anyway, so yeah, he was in Bristol. Spurgeon was in London. Ryle was in Liverpool. um yeah, uh, Riles. I've, I've got a few biographies on him. He was known as a. As a um, we had his funeral. We had his funeral because Liverpool at that time was a very, very it was poorest part of all of the UK area, and it may still be to this day. But it was. Uh, he was known to, like at his funeral. People put uh, most of the people who came were pushing like what we would consider today like grocery carts. You know, just homeless, and that was the majority of his funeral. His participants were the people who were. We're home. that's just kind of his context and we he, he worked with a lot all right um so at this one we're continuing on introductions uh we are looking at some, some warnings here about introductions and kind of give you uh this is meant to be extremely practical as we especially get into this last part and it's going to kind of shoot some very practical thoughts to you as as always i will print out greater uh, all my notes for you or at least i'll put them online for you um, to be able to get as well so uh, so our first uh, warning here, I put uh, don't be uh, verbose. What I mean by that is on the introduction, you want to be brief. You don't want your whole sermon <laughs> to be the introduction. If you go too long, people are going to be automatically checking their watches and going like, "Oh man, he didn't get to the sermon yet." Like it's this is, you know. So you get you got to be get to the point. Your aim in an introduction is to peak interest, right? You just want to peak interest. Um, you know, today I did a sermon. It was on fear, so I went back to the. You know, famous Roosevelt quotes and went back to the time of people were afraid and, you know, asked the questions like, what are you afraid of, right? Just kind of going through that and then jump into the, the context of that. So think of the introduction as the porch of a house, right? It's it's not meant to be bigger than the house. It's meant to just be a small entry to get you into the house. It's not, it's not meant to draw attention away from the house. It's just a means of getting in there. Uh, you want to provide easy access to get into the house, the house of the sermon, right? So that's kind of what we're doing with the with the introduction. Uh, number two, don't be uh, irrelevant. Uh, actually, I have a PowerPoint here. I probably should use it. Um, be careful. Uh, when I say irrelevant, what I mean by that is uh, be careful in the introduction of, of being um, giving historical background of the passage. What I mean by that is if you start off your sermon by the first things out of your mouth is given historical background, because you want to do some of that in your sermon to, to, to give the context, but you got to be careful the introduction is not background information to the, you know, you start off with and the Ephesian people, you know, when they had this and they had this, well you've already disconnected half of your audience now you'll have some that are really interested in the history of it it's great, but the others are going to ask the question, well this doesn't this isn't relevant to me, this is talking about the Ephesians some 2,000 years ago, right? So the point of the introduction is to, is, to, is to kind of tap into that relevancy, like okay this does, this does apply to me, and then go back into history and then come back to the present, right? So you want to not use your introduction to be your background information so make sure it relates obviously to the general point that you're doing um, very bad option don't just tell a joke as an introduction you know oh, it's the lighten people up let me tell a joke and then get into the sermon like that a joke doesn't count as an introduction <laughs> okay you can say stuff that's funny your introduction It's fine but the joke itself is not your introduction just for laughter's sake okay um, uh, someone once put it this way, said, the preacher ought to be able to give his introduction, sit down, and the listeners should course st- uh, him to stand back up and complete the message, compelling him to go, like, no, no, you got fi- you got to finish this. you got to be so interesting in your introduction that people are like, all right, you've got to keep going. I'm gonna, I want a solution to this dilemma right, that you've presented to me. Uh, number three, uh, don't be uh, monocultural. What I mean by that is... Uh, remember that you have a variety of people. In most cases, a variety of backgrounds and cultures of people, um, including backgrounds of experiences. Don't don't tailor your introduction to appeal to the same group every time. Does that make sense? So don't tailor your sermon to, to be to the 45-year-old, you know. Uh, parents of teenagers, or something, every time. I mean, so, every, every introduction is a story about teenagers and parenting. You know, you've you got to vary it up and realize that you've got a, 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 a wide mix of audience. Um, and so, you want to switch that up some. Um, number four, don't be too spiritual. What I mean by that is just, just realize that when you're giving an introduction, you're, you're trying to capture as many people as possible into the subject matter at hand. And if you go way over their heads with a lot of theological talk and a lot of big words that they don't know, they're going to just be like, okay, yeah, he's way over my head. I have no idea what he's talking about. And though you may go on to make it your sermon to be um, understandable to them, you've already lost them because you kind of went too, almost too high at the beginning with some of the language you used, and you kind of they, they kinda get them turned off. Uh, number uh, five, uh, say so don't be tribal. Uh, what I mean by that is, Avoid the avoid the Christianese, is what we like to call it. Meaning, like, realize that every area, you know this in your areas of work, right? Jared, you've got your own vocabulary in your area of work that I wouldn't know what it is, right? I call it a corn Corn, what do you call it? Corn machine. Corn machine, yes. That corn machine thing out there. Why well, I didn't know what it was when I got here. I didn't know what to call it. It's its own area and field. Um, but it's the same, it's the same with, with preaching. It's the same with theology and about we have developed our own language that we kind of don't even realize we've we've developed it because we kind of know what we're saying. But there's new people out there that that language is foreign to them. And so you want to be careful of that um, in terms of, of especially in your introduction in that way. Uh, Number six, don't apologize. Don't ever get up there and go, hey guys, I you know I just been really sick. Um, I didn't get any sleep last night. You know, and just kind of apologizing for the because if you do that that may be the case but if you do that they're already going to be like all right i think i'm going to get out of here <laughs> i to go i'm going to go to the bathroom this is going you you've already lowered the expectations of what people think the sermon's going to be based on that you know i've not had them. And the worst one is like you know what i have enough time haven't had a good amount of time to repair so i apologize ahead of time <laughs> don't don't ever say that because <laughs> people are going to be like oh boy why did we come today um, i'm just i mean these are things People have done, they've said this before, and so you've got to be careful of that. Don't apologize uh, for that. Um, number seven uh, is uh, don't miss the proposition, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But the proposition is uh, really is the end of your introduction. You give an introduction, you appeal to the topic at hand, uh, you make it relevant in the way that people feel like, yes, I want to hear what you have to say, and you end with a proposition, is your introduction, before you get into the body of the sermon, you end with a, with a proposition it's basically a purpose statement it's telling people here here's where we're here's where we're going um here's the road we're, we're going to be traveling on here the flight today is from minneapolis to la and here's here here's our you know you get down on the plane you know it's like well we'll be we'll be coasting at this you know altitude and we'll get there winds are this much you know they're telling you what it's going to be like that's what you're doing you're telling them what the trip's going to be like um presenting that to them you you should be able to give the big idea. If you can't give the big idea of your sermon in one sentence, then they're not going to get it. If you can't do that, if you can't summarize what you're about to, this whole sermon's about in one sentence, um, then you're gonna you're gonna they're gonna have a hard time connecting to that. Okay. All right. The propositional states. So let's dive into that. I won't take too much time with that. I've given you a lot of notes in terms of a lot of words there, as you'll see. But I'll explain those. Again, the proposition is the uh, is the statement of a of a subject uh, that the preacher pr- uh, proposes to develop. Um, again, it's not ready. The sermon's not ready if you can't state its theme in one sentence. Um, it's kind of think of it the hinge between the introduction and the body of the sermon. Right? So you captured their interest. Now you're going to tell them where you're going. One of, one of the things I was always taught is like you tell them where you're going, you tell them when you're there, and you tell them where you went. Right? So that like you you're just you're just setting them up for the trip. You're giving them almost the itinerary um, of where you're going in that way. Okay, so a lot of times your propositional statement will just be one sentence. A lot of times you'll use a plural noun or or a, a key word uh, to use that to get the sermon moving. Um, examples would be: you know, we're going to look at four reasons why Jesus you know, did this. Um, three facts you know, six ingredients, three elements, you know, so you're using, so what I gave you in your notes there is just a a whole bunch of options of words that you can grab a hold to, um, just avoid words like, here are three things, like things, things don't really communicate anything, but you can grab some of these, you know, three answers, or three, three aspirations, or three assurances, right, those have a little bit more content to them, so avoid kind of the simple, uh, Things, kind of thing. Which I just said again. Um, so anyway, so sermons built are built on the proposition. It's good to to repeat your proposition before announcing each point. It's kind of I like to do that practice if I can. So if I get to point one, I get to point two. I tell them, "Now, what we just saw was now look at." All right. So we're, we're we're going back to our propositional statement really at the beginning as we kind of go through the sermon, reminding them of, "Hey, remember, here's our trip, here's our itinerary, here's where we're going." Um. All this alerts the listener where the message is headed, it will show organization, it encourages note-taking as well. And so I put in there like a little, I think I put in your notes, I got the little triangle in there, it's very poorly, uh, did I put that in your notes? It's after all those words. Um, Is there a little triangle? What is it? purpose bridge. Is On the top page oh, I didn't show. Okay, it's yeah, supposed, have, to, be, it's supposed it's to be a triangle. So you, you can kind of see it. Idea. Yeah, you can see that. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's thinking of the idea of you start at the bottom left corner and you work your way up the, up the pyramid, as it were. Okay, so you're studying the text, you're, you're giving the structure of the text, and then you're giving what we call the proposition of the text. You're kind of giving the big overall purpose. And then you get to that top purpose bridge. You're kind of going to come back down. Now we're getting into, how do I communicate it? Now the proposition of the sermon is now I'm, I'm given a sentence that is a way that's going to help the listeners grab a hold of my subject, and then I'm going to give the structure of the sermon, and then the preaching of the sermon. So it's kind of a, a bridge, or climbing a pyramid and back down is kind of where we're going with all of that. okay So, um, alright, outlining. Now outlining is a, um, it is more of a Western concept, that's just how we are structured in our minds, how we think, we think kind of more analytically that way. Uh, most of us, and so um, it's important to frame things for people in the way that they think. So let me give you a few, a few ideas here. Uh, number one, uh, strive to be simple with your outline. Uh, don't, don't outsmart yourself or your audience. Uh, keep your outline simple and memorable. Uh, and considering how many points is appropriate, you should resist the natural tendency to get too many points. Don't pull a rile where you go with 11 um, points. You know, try to Try to keep it simple. Uh, someone once said a sermon with too many points is one with no point. Right? So, don't give so many points that people get lost. I've heard. I heard someone preach one time with like twenty-three points. I heard one time, and I'm like, ah, uh, you lost me at number two. Like I mean, it was like way, way too many uh, of that. So, so default to less. Less is better. Sometimes you, sometimes you need four or five, maybe six. I wouldn't go bigger than that. Sometimes two will work. Um, so you want to kind of just keep it. Keep it simple. It helps keep, it helps keep people on track where you're going. It kind of gives them almost a mental break for a minute. You're, you're digging in on one point, and you're like, okay, point number two. And it's like, okay, all right, point number two. And so it just kind of gives them a little bit of break in the, the, the flow of the sermon. I strive to be purposeful. Uh, this is, again, major points need to be clear. Um, I'm not a big fan of sub points. I think rarely you should use sub points. I think they can really you can really lose people on sub points. Uh, If you do use them, they obviously need to support your main point there and not just be, obviously, random. Um, It should reflect and fulfill the proposition as well. Number three, strive for integrity. Uh, Remember, your goal is to communicate the point of the text. And uh, you'll also find that sometimes there may be occasions, and I do this, I've done this in sermons you've probably heard me preach before, especially when I'm in narratives, like in the Gospel of John, I did this a few times. I, I told people, I said, you know what, today... There won't be an outline. And that's not because I was lazy or because I didn't have time. Um, sometimes, in my opinion, we can force an outline on the text, and it just it doesn't quite fit and in terms of I, – sometimes I like to tell the story. Let's just step back. Let's just tell the whole story. Let's paint it for you. And then let's give almost like the application outline at the very end. So there may be times where where you change that up a little bit. And so just don't force an outline. Don't don't you don't do three points in a poem you know, every time and make sure it fits. I gotta have three. Where's my third one? Oh, I got four. I gotta cut it down to three. Just just uh, be careful of forcing uh, it on the uh, on there. Number four, strive for flexibility. Uh, again, sometimes like I said a second ago, your outline will come at the end as opposed to the, the normal flow of it. Uh, you want to just be careful of, of that, uh, you can, but you can put it sometimes at the end. I've made it more as an application outline at the very end. Here's what we've learned, or here's what we learned from this story. That's thing, again, can be helpful in narrative passages. Uh, strive for parallelism, alliteration. Um, obviously, the parallelism can be helpful because it, your points kind of rhythmically flow from one to the other. Uh, so you strive for, basically, you have nouns, verbs, and modifiers appear in the same order. But there's a little word that changes every time that kind of makes the message move along. It keeps you moving. The word changes only as much as necessary to help move the sermon along. Alliteration can be helpful for people to remember. Be careful of that. Don't force yourself to have to alliterate your points and make them all start with the letter A. And they don't make sense or you're you're pulling some really word word that no one knows uh, in order to make it fit. It's helpful if you can find it, but don't force, again, alliteration. Onto the uh, onto your outline, okay. Don't uh, don't compromise accuracy for cleverness. Let's put it that way. Number six: strive for review. Uh, review your points as you go. Uh, if you uh, this assures the audience knows where you are. You know where we are, where are we at on the map here, where are we at on the road trip. Okay, we just got to St. Louis. That's where we are. Okay, you know now we're now we're in Denver. Like we're working our way across the country. So we we want to tell them. It kind of gives them assurance. Especially there can be moments where you lose them. It just happens. It, you will lose people occasionally. It could be anything. They could have like the phone go off. They could have. They could be daydreaming. <laughs> it could be. You could be really boring, uh, and you're not. Don't, they don't feel relevant to the sermon. Whatever. There's uh, all kinds of issues in that. So you, when you get back to review your points, you kind of can get people back on track. Because sometimes you'll be in a certain point and you lose them, and they kind of tune you out. But then when you go, now what we just saw was. And now we're looking at, they're like, oh, okay, I'm back in now. Back on track. And so it's helpful to kind of review a little bit as you go. Number seven, strive for the imperative. Whenever possible, make the points of your outline contain the application. Use imperatives as much as you can. We'll talk about in a second different kinds of outlines. But descriptive outlines are okay. Imperative outlines are better. If you can put a verb in there, it gives them, you know, almost like the almost like the application. You must pray. You must you know, this, you must, you just kind of give the imperative. You're, you're already putting your application right there into the outline. That's, that's really helpful. Uh, number eight, strive for singularity. Uh, again, while you may have many points in the outline, remember that all your points relate to the proposition. A good sermon, this is really important, a good sermon has one point. Now, you'll have many points in your outline, but hopefully people walk away with one point, right? The overall theme, the whole point of what you're getting at with that. Number number nine: Strive for uh, brevity. Uh, state points concisely. Listeners don't have the opportunity to back up and reread what you've said. So, the shorter the outline, meaning words in it, the better. You don't want to give the Puritan like you know whole paragraph as an outline. <laughs> Point one is, and you go on for like five minutes in this really long sentence or sentences. Uh, short wordings is helpful in that way. Helps them helps them uh, remember it as well. Number ten: Strive for balance. This is one of the advantages of manuscripting I told you about. When you when you write the sermon out and you've gotten your points and you put in the content of what you've learned and you've got them kind of inserted in. Let's just say you got three points, and let's say point one takes up you know your introduction takes up one page. Point one takes up two pages. Point you know point two takes up eight pages, and then point three takes up one page. It's it's a little too much in that middle one, and so it helps the manuscript to go like, okay, these two points, I need to beef these up a little bit. I need to take a little bit out of this one. They don't have to be perfectly parallel, but it's helpful. But there may be times where there's one point you really need to camp on. And maybe you've heard me say this before, and I preach. I'll tell people, like, you know what? This, this is going, we're going to be here for a little bit, but don't worry. Points two and three are going to be a lot quicker. <laughs> so just to prepare them um, of how much the balance, if it's out of balance or it needs to be out of balance, which may be the case. You know, warn them about it, but otherwise try to keep it balanced as much as possible. Number 11, strive for distinction. Um, Make sure every point you're outlining progressively clarifies or justifies your theme. You're always going back to, what was my proposition? What was my purpose statement? Does this point support that? Um, So we were looking for um, main points should not repeat each other in concept or terminology, Examples would be, for example, uh, if I gave the sermon points, we preach Christ whenever there is an opportunity. Point two, we preach Christ when it's not convenient. And point three, we preach Christ when it's difficult. Well, the last two points are pretty much the same. They really, there isn't much difference in we preach Christ whenever there is opportunity. Sorry, whenever it's not convenient and when it's difficult. Like, uh, not convenient is difficult. Like it. It didn't really differentiate, right? So you want to make sure your points are different. You're not just repeating the previous point you said and just using a different word. Make sure it it moves. You want your your sermon to be moving uh, forward. Number 12, uh, strive for progression. Every point in your line, again, should progress, clarify, and justify uh, the theme. So it becomes clearer, richer, more compelling. Uh, This is a lot of times achieved by... By you, repeating the same word or phrase throughout the sermon outline, but just shifting maybe the verb or shifting a little bit of the content in that way. And we'll talk about some examples here in a second. And so this, this will cause you to kind of have to learn what to leave out as well. So different kinds of outlines. Let's look at, look at a few of these. Number one, um, we'll call it the simple observation outline. This is just just states the, the kernel of the major truth in that particular section. It is worded as if it's an abbreviated observation of a cluster of verses. Uh, this will be, uh, usually won't be a complete sentence, but a, a solitary noun with a modifier. So I gave you some examples. I think in your notes there, you'll see that Psalm 3, David's trial, David's trust, David's triumph. I know it alliterates. That is the, you know, it, it's, a, it's okay. It's an okay outline. The, I am I'm, I'm much rather really try to get myself an imperative outline that kind of says what needs to happen. This is more, what we say, this is more observation, right? Uh, Exodus 14, the warrior king, warrior savior, the warrior judge, right? So it kind of flows through that. The second one there, the first person outline, is directly speaking through the homiletical points, which is really helpful to do too, because people really can relate to it. It uses uses the the word me or I in it. You'll see Psalm 17 there as an option, right? So see me, search me, show me, shield me. Yes, they're all literated. I do do that a lot. But you can see how it's, it, people can relate to that a little bit better than they can the previous one, which was David's trial, trust, and triumph, right? The other one feels a little bit more academic. This feels a little bit more personal when you start using me and I. The, uh, and then the best one, I think, is the, the practical outline. And this is uh, the main application of each major division of the passages moved into the headings or into the, the titles there. Uh, it involves an action point, calling the listener to step out and follow the major points, so you can see Psalm 65 there, praise God for his grace, praise God for his greatness, praise God for his goodness. So it, the verb is praise. People know when they walk out today, all right, the point today is that I need to praise God. For what? For his grace, for his greatness, for his goodness. So that, that's why these, out, these kind of outlines are a lot more powerful because people, it really helps get the point across as opposed to saying, well, what was the point today? Well, David had a trial. Dave, David triumphed. Yeah, I mean, hopefully in the sermon, you're kind of bringing the application, but the outline like this really helps people get it a lot simpler. And then number four, a full sentence outline. Um, This can be helpful as well. This kind of gives a little bit longer. It contains a subject, verb, possibly even an object. Again, less is more, but it can be tightly worded. Exodus 4 is an example there. God is serious about the mission. Got is serious about His glory. Got is serious about a legacy. So, you, so again, you can you see what I mean by repeating. Like you're kind of the, the ideas repeated. So they walk away going, God's serious. <laughs> that's what. That's kind of. That is more of a, a little bit academic. It's not quite as application oriented as you know. Praise God as a verb to it. Nonetheless, walk away with the with the point. God is serious. It's a, good, it's a good sermon. And that they walk away with that point and they go, well, What's he serious about? Well, he's serious about these things. So so that you kind of see how the outline flows. You're, you're, they sound similar, yet there's a little variation, and there's some, some growth to it as it moves on. Okay? Any questions about outlines? All right. Rapid fire. Here we go. Transitions. Again, this is tell them what, you tell, what, what you're going to tell them. Tell them and then tell them what you told them. Uh, this moves, the outline moves you from one point to another. So you're kind of explaining different, uh, you're explaining previous points as you move along. So types of transitions, uh, here's some examples. you get got the, the knitting statements. This is using the phrase like, not only, but also, or next, right? Um, so you're kind of, as you move from one point to another, you're just, you're just giving a little bit of a knitting statement, right? Not only did David do this, but David also point two did. All right, so you're kind of moving it. Uh, a second one, which is a good method, dialogical questions. Um, this would be things like, "Now you may be thinking," or "You must wonder what what is going to happen to the." You know, I did this morning with the sailors. I'm like, "Now, now, what would you think these sailors are going to do? You would think they just, you know, keep going. No, but they don't. They let's look what happens next They, Right, so we're we're moving the sermon along. We're asking questions, having people think through it. Um, and so it just helps them be alert to that. Uh, number three, numbering and listing. This is kind of using the most common one. This is simply going, now first, we see this. Second, we see this. Now thirdly, we see this. That's fine to use. Not quite as powerful, but it is it is a method you can use for kind of giving your outline. Um, you can say things like again or finally or moreover or uh, further, or further in the next place in addition to Paul goes on to say you know so you can you can do that Um, that'll move the outline along these are all states what we're doing talking about transitions we're just trying to move uh, our outline along and then number four uh, uh, picture painting this is just simply using uh, phrases people understand you can say you know you you give one you know on one side of the coin point one and second point is now on the flip side of the coin right so you're you're using some sort of word picture, some sort of analogy they would understand. Uh, if you're, you could build a sermon up. I've done this before, where you're building up to the straw that broke the camel's back. Right, straw one, straw two, and this is the straw that broke the camel's back. Right, and so this one, this is the this is the truth that really got them right here. And so you're kind of moving it along in that way. And then lastly, the billboards or branches. This is uh, statements that tell the points are coming up. So this will say things like, you must believe the love of Jesus is greater than sin, greater than circumstances, greater than Satan. You know, these are some of my favorite ones to use. You're kind of giving a, a big billboard of where you're going um, on those statements. Some principles for this. Number one, don't overstay your welcome. Alright, so your transitions are meant to be brief. You don't want to take a lot of time reviewing your previous point, for example. You know, you don't want to take this. You know, five minutes going now. What we just saw was this. Let me tell you what we just saw. And you're you go on for five, like, no, no, you just told us that. I don't, I don't need you to just give me really briefly what we just said and move on. So don't overstay your welcome when you're making transitions. Uh, Number two, again, repeat, repeat, repeat. This is just an important part. Just keep repeating what what you've said as you move along. But again, keep it, keep it brief. Uh, Number three, connect. Uh, transitions break the entire message into palatable pieces of information. So be clear, concise, reasoned, logical in that um, move from one to the other. Pull your message forward by using these transitions. Number, and number four, advance. Again, help propel their argument forward. Statements like what is more in addition to, but that's not all, you know, kind of statements will help. Uh, this, this all leads to the to this. Those are statements that are good little transitional statements to make that kind of give people anticipation and give people movement. That's what we're thinking every time we're moving this. It's a train. We start at the station. We're trying to get here. We want to just keep this baby moving. Right? Uh, application. So sometimes application can be put at the conclusion of every main point. Sometimes the application can be inserted right into the outline. Like I said before, praise God for his. Praise God. So there's the application right in the outline. And sometimes your application can just be summarized, summarized all the way at the very end of the sermon. So there's a lot of places you can put it. You can put it right at the end of every point of your outline. You can put it in your outline. Or you can put it right at the very end of the sermon as the conclusion. But the point is, make sure you put it somewhere. <laughs> Don't leave out the application. Um, you want to make sure you, you bring it home in some form and, and, and where you are. Make the servant, sermon relevant to your hearers. Ways to bring application. Number one. Is uh, anticipate your audience. This is just again anticipating who you're speaking to. Sometimes visualizing the faces of the people that you know you'll be speaking to, especially getting the cross section of those kinds of people, can help you in the application. You want to ask the question: What difference does this passage make to their lives? All right, I'm gonna so and so is gonna be there. Now, what difference does this make for him, or what does this difference does this make for her? Um, this also helps to to think of. Um, what, what difference does this passage make to the businessman? What difference does this passage make to the single mom? What difference does this passage make to the teenager? What, you know, so you're just kind of thinking through different people's situations and how this can apply to them, and mixing that up as you move along. Brian uh, Chapel in our book said, without the so what, we preach to a who cares. <laughs> right. So we, we need to give a so what. And uh, not that we can apply to everybody's particular situation, but you'll find... If you zero in on one, and maybe apply it to to a, to a small group of your audience, people are pretty intelligent. They'll they'll figure it out. Well, if, he, if this applies to him this way, well, that means this for me, right? And remember, you get the Spirit of God working here. You you can't possibly apply it to every single person, particularly to their given situation. But the Spirit of God can. That's the power of it. But you gotta give some of it. Give some people a little bit of a platform, a little bit of a branch to walk out on, so they can they can apply it for themselves. Number two, understand, again, understand the people. This is going back to knowing their spiritual needs uh, and the struggles that they have. Understand their temptations, discouragements, sins, uh, whatever they may be. Understand what's going on with the people. And you know, I also got a sermon this week. I, knew, I know, based on conversations I've had with many people, there's a lot of fear over changes and things like that. So I made sure to, to grab, to use that, because I wanted to make sure to insert that and make that applicable, because obviously I knew that's where a lot of people were. In that way, um, sometimes it's helpful in this way to be in touch with people, kind of know where they are, know their lives. Um, you know, as much as you can, do that. Uh, be in their house, be at their work, be someplace so you can kind of just get their life and know what what they face on a day by day basis. That's uh, that's helpful. Knowing what they read, what they listen to, what they watch can be helpful too, and help connect those applications to them. Number three, write out your application. I would say it the same way. I don't want you to wing the content of your message. I don't want you to wing the interpretation. I don't want you to wing the application either. Like, think through it. Don't just think, well, when I get up there, the Spirit of God will hit me and I'll just, I'll know what to apply. Write out, write it out. It'll be helpful. It'll be helpful for you. Uh, sometimes in mine, I, I, I used to do paper. I do digital now, but when I did paper, I'd always give myself symbols. So in the in the margin, I'd draw like a little window. And that would give me, oh, i got an illustration coming up. You know, I've got an application point coming up. And so I'd put that in there just to kind of visualize for me. All right, we're going to bring this, bring this home at that point. Number four, make it personal. Again, as directly pointed as possible. The second person, you, can be very helpful. Think of it as a, you, you want to try to give application and try to make it more of a rifle than a shotgun. Try to go after a particular area. Uh, and, and trust the spirit of God to kind of bring. If that doesn't particularly apply to an individual out there, that it can it can come across and they can they can apply that too. Number five, be strategic. Um, it's a general a general rule. I think the general rule is the point of application needs to be located soon after you explain a section. So if you're in verses one through three, and that's point one. You explain those verses, you've given the historical context, you've explained what Paul means is this and that, and you've kind of illustrated it. And now, before you move on to point two, that's a good point to kind of bring it home. Let's talk about it, you know, let's apply that now. What, hit You know, while the iron's hot, as it were. like Press down at that point, you've explained it, they get it. Now, bring an application point at that, and then move into point two. So a lot of times your application, one of the most powerful places to put it, is right at the end of each point uh, that you have. Number six, just varying the kinds of application. Again, uh, sometimes application can involve warning. Sometimes it can involve admonishment. Sometimes encouragement. Sometimes it's comforting. Sometimes it's urging and pleading. Right? There's different ways to bring about application, so you want to vary your approach uh, to that as well. Number seven, do not overextend your authority. That's, an, that's really important when we talk about application. Paul said at 1 Corinthians 4, six, do not go beyond what is written. So sometimes, you, I've, I've been around pastors before that overextend their authority. My authority goes as far as the scripture goes. Now, a lot of application is not necess- it's more of a... Now, it, now, what that can look like is this, right? Or asking questions is a really good way to bring application, because it makes them think through it. But if you go, now, what that means is that you need to go do this and go do that. Well, whatever you're saying to tell them to go do, make sure that it's biblical and not your own personal application, right? You know, again, interpretation can be different than application. There is one interpretation. There is multiple applications. So be careful of telling people that this is what you must do in light of this if the what you must do is not clearly stated. Does that, does that make sense with that? Uh, all right, number nine, conclusions. So think of uh, the sermon. We talked about this last time together. Think of it like a flight, again, out of Indianapolis, You're going to L.A., your introduction is kind of like your taxing. okay. Your your proposition is kind of the takeoff, the body of the message is the flight, and your conclusion is the landing of the plane. Okay, so that's we're going up and we're coming back down. I'm always thinking of it that way, and so you want to always remember that. Remember that, that last words are lasting words, so make them make them important. Uh, so some principles for crafting conclusions: number one, avoid predictability. Okay, be careful always using you know the, the the this you always quote somebody at the very end for your conclusion or you always give you know the infamous three points in a point, right just vary it up a little bit and also don't announce your conclusion okay guys now here's the conclusion to the sermon <laughs> and so you may notice if you do that everyone starts packing up and you know like okay okay it's over now um just don't announce where you're you know that this is now our time to conclude and so um if you do do that, by the way, and I've heard that before, sometimes I get to talk about communion. I see people start folding up, you know, clo- you know closing their and Sometimes I'll, I'll notice that and I'll just say, hey, look, look up, look up for a second. Look up. And so just kind of catch them <laughs> in, that, in that motion just to draw their attention back. It's a, you, know, you can use that method too. To kinda, if you do accidentally go, and in conclusion, and you realize people go, oh, okay, and they put their head down. Now, now, now look at me. Now, now follow me. This is really important. Something like that to draw them back in. But sometimes you'll say things like, oops, I just gave them permission to close down. <laughs> like, i gotta, I got to bring them back now. So, again, avoid predictability. That'll be helpful so people don't automatically know, oh, yeah, this is a conclusion. You know, I can, I can pack it up. Number two, uh, stir introspection. This is a great way to end on a high note. is give them something to think about. Give them something to reflect on. Uh, you want them to reflect on their standing before God. You want them to reflect on the power of the gospel to motivate them and move them. Uh, rhetorical questions are really, really helpful. Rhetorical questions are very powerful methods for conclusions, because what you're doing is you're just really placing people right in the palm of the spirit of God. Right? So you're asking them, you know, you're just, you're, what are you afraid of? Just turn it over to God. What are you afraid of? Yeah. You're you're causing them to kind of just really reflect on, think on that way. Uh, consider symmetry. And this is also called, we call this in, in homiletics, the, the wraparound. It's a great method if you can pull it off. Just don't do it all the time. But what, the, what, the, what this is, is basically you start with the introduction of a story. And you're it's a compelling story, you know, of, a, of whatever subject. And then you just kind of leave that story and get into an introduction. And then you give the sermon and the conclusion, you come back to the story and you complete it. Right? That's that's a great method. It's like a little, It's like a great beginning and end. They're always wondering like, what happened to that dog. You know <laughs> what happened to him, and at the conclusion, you bring up the dog. You know he's back in the story again. It's like whoa, he's back again. People love that kind of stuff. It just really grabs their attention. It's a hard one to do, but if you can pull that one off, the the symmetry is really can be very powerful in that. Number four, uh, conclude naturally. Uh, don't you don't want to be a running commentary and just stop be like, all right, time's up, we're done. Again, one of my mentors, John MacArthur, is infamous for this. it will just, well, we're out of time. We'll pick this up next week. Let's pray. <laughs> so you want to conclude. Bring bring the plane down. You know, uh, we want every sermon, even if your sermon's in a series, if your sermon is a, of a book that you're going through, you want every sermon to be able to stand alone. So you can't say, well, then next week we'll really finish up, you know, when we get to this. like, Don't assume. This is really important when you're teaching people, and this is really the... The real, real sober, serious point here. You can't be guaranteed that that person listening to you today will be alive next time you're there. You just don't. And so you don't want to have every sermon needs to stand alone. It needs to just remember, like, these people may not make it home today. So this is, this needs to hit home every time and not go, hey, let's just wait till next week. Uh, that'll be really important. Uh, number five, appeal to the affections. Uh, this is, again, a conclusion. should be unmistakably personal. Okay, it should unmistakably be personal. The goal is not just to have them be smarter or more theologically educated. You want it to get to the heart. You want to get to the affections uh, of them. You want to get to what they worship. Right. A good sermon. Take good a good sermon. What you'll have is you'll have people taking notes during it. You got your outline, you know, and they're taking notes. And then there'll come a point where they'll just kind of drop the pen. And it just kind of gets. And you can sometimes you can. You can't control this it's the Holy Spirit of God. But you can just you can hear a pin drop. It just gets really quiet out there. And what's happening is worship. I mean people are people are are, are captivated by the Spirit of God, by by the glory of God, and they are they are there. And they're just so you want to kind of at your conclusion really get to a point where there is some stillness there. Um, get them to, you know, to reflect on on God in that way. Number six, end with authority. Uh, Paul told Timothy to preach with all authority. You want your conclusion to end with that. Give it kind of like the final fork in the road. There's a, there's a, something to to one of two courses that you can go. Um, answer the question as a result of this message. What does God want the listener to do? How does He want them to respond? And so you want to always go like that. Think of it like a lawyer. You're you're going for the jugular. You're going for the verdict. You want to get the you know the the jury to to sway. You want to sway their opinions. To, to go your way. And so the closing appeal of the sermon to listeners should be the primary directed. Um, and so that you have those, I think I have them in your thing there, three things you want them to know something, feel something, or do something. Right, so is what you want them to kind of walk away with. Some sort of application uh, in that way. Number seven, avoid uh, prayer conclusions. It happens sometimes. I did a little bit today because I kind of forgot something. And I kind of brought it up in my prayer. That's not the best method. <laughs> so um, don't make your prayer, the conclusion be your prayer. And you're like, and you get to pray and now you start applying it to them in your prayer. Try to avoid that. It's it's better to give the uh, conclusion and then pray. Uh, so be careful of that one. Uh, but there can be times where, and I've done this too, there would be moments where, you know what, you yeah, yeah, I think it would be appropriate right now. If everyone just Everybody just close your eyes and bow your head for a moment and you can maybe, maybe you start talking to them while they're you're not praying but you've kind of brought them into a state of prayer you kind of have them close their eyes remove their distractions and kind of get ask some questions that can be a good method too obviously don't do that every single sunday or every single time you teach but you want to um but avoid the prayer conclusion number 8 uh, again just land the plane resist the urge to take off again okay <laughs> you know the wheels land. and It's like, oh, no, here we go. We're back up again. And it's just that you just, people just, they get jerked around. They don't know where they're going. Are we landing? Are we flying? Are we going back to Indianapolis now? Like, I thought we were landing in L.A. What's happening? And so you want to avoid the turbulent kind of landing there. Um, you, don't, you want them to walk away. You want them leaving. You don't want them leaving with uh, just wondering what the overall point is. You want them to leave with the point. Land the plane. Cut off the engine. Throw out the keys. Okay, don't, don't crank it back up and take it back off again. Um, land it. Okay. Uh, your last thing, there are various kinds of conclusions. I just kind of listed them. You're just different ways of, of going about it. You get your illustrations. Um, you know, it's more of a story. You got your questions. I think which is my one of my favorite and most uh, powerful methods. I think is just asking the question. Uh, quotations can be helpful at times. you given a quote by somebody. Again, just vary it up. Don't use the same thing every time. Um, specific instructions. Sometimes you get very practical. You know what? This may let me give you a few practical steps of what this might look like. Right, that's helpful too. But again, you don't want every sermon to be practical helps at the very end. But that can be good as a, as a changing up too. And again, list of uh, practical take on points, uh, as I said, can be helpful. The, uh, the hymn... Conclusion can be helpful. Bringing something like that, poetry into it, can be helpful too. Any questions on conclusions? We're moving. All right. Number 10, the gospel. Um, So a lot of this is in your book, and I'll defer to that, so I'm going to skip some of this material here. But what I want to say is uh, when I say the gospel, this is not necessarily the evangelistic appeal of, um, of the unbeliever, as much as it is actually and it's a different preaching methodology, the gospel is actually more of the application point for the believer. Not that you're saying you want the believers to get saved over and over again. It's not the point. You're seeking to to transform them right in their seat. How do you do that? By presenting the person and work of Christ, compelling them by his mercy and grace and power, that they then move out changed. They move out motivated to obey whatever it is it's been called to in the sermon. And so this is not a way of just trying to tack on Jesus at the end. Uh, that sometimes can be very painful because you kind of end the sermon and you go like, now for all you unbelievers out there, you know, and let me tell you about that. You give them the Romans road right, at the very end of the sermon. If you do that every Sunday, I mean, people just turn, they'll just turn you off so quickly because they're just used to, oh, here we go, Romans road time. Um, we If you apply the gospel to their life, I mean, no matter where you are, the actual, the believer will be affected by it, obviously, but the unbeliever will hear what it looks like. Oh, I see how the gospel answers my anxieties. I see how the gospel answers my fears. I see how the gospel answers, you know, it, it just has a way of applying to everyone. So, uh, so the principles here, again, I just said that, finds, find the uh, believer finds power and motivation um, in that. Again, the, the lecture, uh, the, it turns from a lecture or a lesson into a sermon when you get to Jesus. Uh, number two there, the unbelievers get the gospel, they see how it works, in family life, marriage, parenting, suffering, grieving, it it applies to every bit of, of their life. And ultimately, your goal there is God is worshipped, because the overall goal is to lift Christ up. And so you want to get to the gospel, what's your conclusion, uh, because that's your overall goal. You know, Spurgeon talked about one time, he heard somebody, a man who was very intelligent, and he said, uh, but he never got to Jesus, never got to the gospel, and here's what he said, he said, yet, uh, he said, um, he said, I once heard a, a man who was very learned, yet all about moral truth and ethical practice and inspiring concepts and not a word about Christ. And he said, quote, they have taken away my Lord. I, not know, I know not where they laid him. I heard nothing about Christ. So he's, quote, Mary, you know, they took my Lord away. Where have they taken him? Um, he said, you got to get to that. So we talked about it last time. If, you're, if your sermon can be preached in a Jewish synagogue and they give you a little thumbs up, there's a problem there. You've got to get to Christ uh, in that way. Okay, um, I'm going to skip to class five here. We've got our last 40 minutes. And this is kind of dealing with a little bit more oratory parts here. Now i got 20 of them, so we're going to have to zip through these. Uh, number one, the power of questions. We looked at this a little bit already. Questions get people to think and evaluate. It prevents them from lulling them to sleep. If you just give a lot of information without ever asking a question... You kind of can lose people. It's almost like, like information overload. It's just too much information. They're just receiving it, but they're not having to process it. Questions make them process. Questions make them evaluate, make them think. It switches gears, almost, as it were. You just moved into a different gear there. Oh, well, the ride just got faster or it got slower. or Something something changed. So it just kind of changes it. It's really helpful to bring those questions. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus asked, I counted through the Gospels, asked 307 questions in the four Gospels. 307 questions. He was, that was like one of his major skills, or major oratory skills, was the question. He would just ask them all the time. And sometimes he would ask rhetorical ones where no one would answer. Sometimes he asked very pointed questions for, for them to answer. Nonetheless, they, they were a very powerful method. I gave you a few examples that are in there. And so, a key to asking right questions, and this is, this is kind of what Raul did in your, your, what you saw there, is anticipating what your audience may, may be thinking. Uh, consider saying something like now now you may be thinking you know and then you you give the question and then you, you'll find people when they, you say that I and mean, I see this when I preach they go like yeah, yeah i i i am thinking that how did you know <laughs> it's like, um you know once you you may want to anticipate you know sometimes i'll say like no no chris are you you may be thinking, chris are you are you how are you so sure how do you yeah i am thinking how do you how are you sure <laughs> so you're just anticipating what's going on in their head if you can Duplicate that with your words. You really bring them in. Like, wait a minute, how did he know I was thinking that? Uh, it's a great method to kind of capture your audience. Another key to this, also with the question, is learning to pause after your questioning. I know my tendency is just to keep the engine running and keep the pedal down. If you ask the question, just let it linger for a moment. It'll if you're if you're not used to it, it'll be it'll feel a little uncomfortable to you at first. But I promise you. It, it, is, it is not nearly as uncomfortable um, as it is to them. Like, they're, they're usually like, oh. And, and a lot of times it's good for them. They like to sit there and think about it. Questions are good. Just give it some pause. Give them a chance to answer in their head, especially the rhetorical questions. Sometimes, and I do this, I did this this morning, sometimes inviting them to actually answer out loud can keep them involved, right? It keeps them thinking with that. Sometimes it could be just finishing something. You know, I can't remember which one I used today, but, you know. Um, we have nothing to fear, but but yeah, but what fear itself? Or you know, Jesus said, you know, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. You know, so it, that that helps people draw them in it keeps them engaged it keeps them going. Um, I've been in African American churches, and man, they're fun because that's I get all that feedback. I mean, they're more than they. I'll ask rhetorical questions, and they'll answer them anyway. Right? So that wasn't meant to be answered out loud. Um, but anyway, but it can be it can be helpful. Uh, number two, the power of, uh, of adjectives. They're powerful descriptors. They're the paint of your house of your sermon. They add color, vibrancy, vividness. Uh, think about it this way. If I gave you some examples, instead of saying, you know, the crowds were loud as Jesus was crucified. Okay, they were loud. But to say something like, the crowds let out a deafening roar when Jesus was crucified. Okay, now that, you can hear that, that's a lot different description. You're saying the same thing, but that adjective, that deafening sound, it's like, oh, okay, I that's really loud. <laughs> wow, they must have been really angry. So you, people are following along with you. If you just say, they were loud, it doesn't really give them much imagination. Now, instead of saying, you know, Jesus' Jesus's suffering was painful, you could say, Jesus' suffering was excruciating. Right? That that word excruciating brings a lot more powerful to, power to it than... Than just saying pain. Um, so saying the lady with the two mites was very poor. You could say the lady with the two mites she was destitute. So see I mean, your adjectives really bring a lot of imagination. That's one of the things you want to appeal to is the imagination of your audience. Have them picturing, seeing, feeling, smelling uh, what it is that the story that they're in. Words like devastating or gorgeous or swamped or packed or horrifying or mind blowing or preposterous. Like the, those are great. Words you know to use in your sermon because it just gives everyone can almost smell them. They can see them. They can taste them in different ways. Uh, the power of of synonyms number three. Uh, this uh, synonyms help expand your audience's understanding as well as help them grasp the point. It's particularly important when considering the entire sermon. Avoid using the same words over and over. So if you find your sermon, if you do a word search, if you're printing, you know, if you're doing it on a computer. You know, do a little word. If you keep looking, things like, man, I really say that word a lot. Word search it. If you see it pop up numerous times, it's easy on the word document. Just hit the source. I'm like, oh, okay, here's a different word I can use there. Change it up. Don't use the same word over and over again. It, again, adds a different flavor. Adds a little spice to the to the meal there. It gives a little different different kick to it. It also helps uh, using synonyms. Uh, synonyms will help expand their vocabulary, especially in theological or doctrinal areas. It also helps them, maybe they didn't get the words you used before, maybe the words you used before, they have never heard that word, so they weren't quite sure what you meant by it, and if you use a, a synonym for it, they're like, oh, okay, now, uh, now I know what you meant by that, right? So if you vary your synonyms, uh, they can be really helpful to give clarity. Um, one warning with that, obviously, is is don't use synonyms just to to look really intelligent. You find the, the most complex word out there to to appear to be intelligent. Um, not that you're not intelligent, but just be careful of that. Uh, number four, uh, the power of threes. Now, this is unique. I I picked this up from uh, one of the pastors I used to serve with, Dr. Uh, Steve Lawson. He was great at this. The power of three. I learned this from him. And he went, you go through the Psalms and you'll find there's something about the three. I don't know if it is with With the human, we always talk about the traditional three-point sermon, right? There's something about three; it's an odd number. It just seems to be just enough. But if you can say something three times, there's a way in which that just kind of has a way of nailing it down for people. So if you see, like here um, in Psalm 118, they surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. They surrounded me like bees, right? We said surrounded three different times. You know, it was just a way of. You see this throughout the psalms. Psalm 121. And the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He will keep your going out and your coming in. There it is. Just, you, if you start looking at the Bible, look for this, you'll see it all over the place. There's something about just a repetition of threes. Um, just helps people grab stuff. And so um, so it'll be, you can use those synonyms too for that. You can say something three times in a row using three different words that mean the same thing. Uh, will be helpful in, in helping people connect with that. And if you listen to me carefully, you'll hear me do almost, I put almost a lot of things into threes. Uh, and that was just a method I learned learned from him. And number five, the power of contrast and negation. This is basically telling them what you don't mean. Sometimes you can say a truth, and people are shaking their head, and they think they know what you mean. But if you go and go, now what I don't mean by that is, now all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, oh, now I know what he's talking about. Because like, they may think you understand, they understand what you're saying, but when you say what it's not, that may actually really give them the meaning you really wanted them to give, right? Remember, people define words differently. And so if you can provide some negation, some negative in terms of uh, this is what it does not mean, can be really helpful. So uh, so if you're saying, for example, if you're preaching on you know, <coughs> Luke 10 about, you know, the greatest commandment is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. You're talking about loving your neighbor as yourself. You can say, now, do you love your neighbor? Yeah, yeah I do. Well, well, now, what I mean by that, when I say Jesus says love your neighbor, he does not mean... That you only love the people that you know. Or that you only love people that you like. Or you only love people that just live next to you. I mean, he means anybody in need. Oh, okay, now I know what you mean by neighbor. So see, you, you kind of took away some of the things they may have thought it meant. And then when you did that, now they really get the meaning of it. So that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about this power of negation. So if you go to like Romans 10.9, you can say something like, you know, notice it does not say that, that you might be. Saved. It doesn't say, you hope to be saved. It says, if you call in the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Oh, wow, well, okay, that makes sense. right? So, again, you're given the negation, you're given the negative to really enforce what the text actually means. Uh, number six, uh, the power of cross-references. Cross-references can be really helpful. Uh, it helps um, get you, what it, what it is, is getting out of your immediate context into another part of Scripture that will either back up the theme or the, maybe the theological subject that you're in Sometimes it may be a word study, right? So you, you're, in, um, you're, in, you're in Peter or something, you're talking about the, um, um, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, but you're, you're in that one word, but Peter uses it again in chapter 5, and you're in chapter 1, you cross reference out to chapter 5, or if you're in Paul's writings especially, and you're in First Corinthians, you're like, over in Ephesians now, he uses the same word. Let me show you what he, how he used it there. That'll shed light on the word, or shed light on the truth theological truth that's what cross references do just be careful again like we talk about real estate real estate is location 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 your cross cross references are the same thing they are, they are all about context 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 so make sure if you're cross referencing you're not just pulling a word out and you're searching the word um, you know that's there you're searching this word and oh it, it shows up in in Romans great rip it out and just give it because it's the same word but you didn't really study the context so Sometimes given a one word, a one not one word, one sentence explanation of where you're going, you know. Now over in Ephesians, now when Paul's writing to the Ephesians here. He's in the context he's talking about blank, and you give the you give the verse that just gives people a little bit of context of where you're going, and also makes sure that you know what you're saying and not pulling stuff out of context. Right, number seven, uh, the power of similes and metaphors. Um, again, this is just using the the like the as as you'll see there in Psalm one, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. I mean, this is just you can just look at the the Psalms have such a beautiful way of communicating. That's why everybody loves them, right? Yeah, I've yet to meet a Christian goes like, I hate the Psalms, right? I mean, they, they love the Psalms, and they may not like Hosea, but man, they really like the Psalms. Why? Because they're they're just they're just pictures, and people connect to that. There's a reason for that. You want to really grow in your communication skills. Just keep reading the Psalms. You just kind of pick up on how they do this. So, the similes are powerful. The metaphors are powerful. You can see those, like in uh, Psalm eighteen, "The Lord is my rock; He's my fortress; He's my deliverer." Oh, well, that those are great metaphors to kind of elaborate on and explain. You'll see that throughout. "The, the, the Lord is my shepherd." Um, number eight: power of illustrations. The word "illustrate" literally means from the Latin comes from the Latin word to let light in let light in and so you want to allow light to come into your sermon right um illustrations are windows for the house of your sermon now obviously you don't want to build your whole house out of windows right that's that's going be faulty you want a foundation you want some walls up windows are good but you can't have the whole sermon be windows okay so you got to use them at the appropriate times um you want your audience to go away again thinking about god and his word and not about how creative you were with your illustrations and so um they should su- support the truth. And here's a, a, few, a few thoughts on illustrations. Uh, have no more than one illustration per point. That's a, that's a good principle. Don't give multiple illustrations for every point. Just try to think of one illustration for this one point. Now, you don't have to give an illustration for every single point. But if you're going to do one, keep it at one per point. Um, seek original illustrations as much as you can from like your own personal life or experience or something that you've seen or observed. That can be really helpful. Again, be careful not making yourself the hero of all of your stories. Uh, avoid cliches. I would say avoid books of illustrations. Uh, is that great? I always say great. When I first started preaching, I had books of illustrations, and I'd go to them, and it just never seemed to come out well. But when I, used, when I came up with my own, and it, it really went a lot further. And so just avoid some of those. Um, meet with people. You know, Be interested in them. Ask them about their life. You'll find illustrations by just asking questions about people. Um, I would say uh, also if you do meet with people and you use illustrations from their life, always ask permission again. If you're going to use them in an illustration, some people just don't want to be talked about at all, even if it's in a good light. They just don't want their name to come up publicly. So just be careful of that. Um, don't forget to look for biblical illustrations. That can be really helpful. If you're in, you know, if you're in uh, Colossians and you're going to illustrate through David's life in First Kings or something, um, then you want to it's a good place to go because what you're doing with that is you're not only giving an illustration, here's what it looked like in David's life, you're also teaching your audience another portion of scripture. Right? You're, you're, you're teaching them more. You're giving them more content and they're understanding more about a part of scripture maybe they didn't know about. You know, you're know, you going to the mighty men of David and you're illustrating that from a point you're at in the New Testament. It can be really, really powerful. Uh, one of the best sources for getting illustrations is just being a good reader. Just read. If you read... You'll find all kinds of stuff that you're reading um, involve your your family uh, other people in the congregation to help you think through some of uh, illustrations I've done that before too and be like hey especially when I was at young men I was kind of disciple and be like hey I'm looking for an illustration on you know on, on on anxiety or something you know I'm looking I'm looking <coughs> preaching in Matthew 6 on don't worry about your life like come back to you with some couple of illustrations you can think of right so though and if you use it, man, they're super excited. They're like, I gave them the illustration. You know? And so this can be helpful involving other people. And again, just like with the conclusion, don't announce your illustration. I do that sometimes, it's not the best method. Now let me illustrate this for you. Right? Just, just just go right into it. People will get it. You don't have to announce it. Uh, number nine, the power of imagination. Again, Jesus used this so well, right? Painting the word pictures, having them see. Imagery. Uh, you want your audience, again, to feel the story. A great principle is give the name of the dog. Give the dog's name in the illustration. You know, don't just talk about a dog. Talk, give, give the dog's name. Make it personal. Um, give them a sense of the feel, the smell, the look of what it is you're doing. Um, when I did uh, a sermon back in January on, um, on the story out of Luke 15, I talked about the younger brother, the older brother, I used the, the whole thing of like now now like if you look down to the, the younger brother, you know he's come back home now now as you pan the camera out, you see the older brother out there with sweat dripping from his brow in the, out in the fields and, and he's getting really frustrated at the fact that you know, just kind of used the camera illustration you kind of looked out now all they' they're seeing it they can they're used to what a movie is like you know, they understand the camera panning out to the side and so just kind of think through those using different ways to to help them see it um let's see number 10 the power of humor uh too much heavy content Uh, again makes it hard for your audience to breathe so imagine your content is like weights on a swimmer all right they're sinking underneath it it's heavy that's good you want to be heavy on them but you can't they gotta they gotta survive (laughs) your applications not gonna mean anything to them if they die in your sermon right so you gotta take the weights off for a second let them breathe Okay, put the weights back on, down they go again, right? So, that's what humor can do. It kind of just breaks the ice a little bit. It's really tense. They're really sinking underneath the weight of it. Now, you want to be careful. You don't want to distract or move away the maybe the uh, conviction of the Spirit of God that's happening at that moment. It's just one of those skills you have to kind of learn as you look out and realize, okay, I'm either losing my audience, they're not with me, or this is really, really heavy and it's set with them for a while. Let's kind of break the ice for a moment. Um... So you just want to be be careful with it. So, a few things about humor first. Be you know, again, be careful with it. Don't use humor just for humor's sake. It's like I'm going to be funny. Let me think of something really funny to say. Uh, you want to be careful of that. Uh, don't uh, don't. Um, the timing is everything with those. Poorly placed humor can rob the heart again of conviction. Be careful. Uh, derive your humor from your from real life, not canned humor books. Don't, don't read the latest joke out of you know some book that you read that those rarely ever go over well. And always a very important point is never make fun of your wife or your family. It, just, it may be really funny. You'll pay for it later, so don't do that. Uh, you're always the safest object of humor, right? Make fun of yourself. Everyone gets a kick out of that. When, when I call it the, the core machine, that's funny to people, right? It's like, okay, I look like a dummy, but they like it, so it's funny. Uh, number eleven uh, the power of quotes uh, this can be again a really good source of information for people don't don't quote people to death though don't just constantly all your content is just quoting everybody else and so and so said this and so and so said that and so and so said this you'll lose people <clears throat> when you use quotes, keep them simple keep them short don't give really long you know multiple paragraph don't quote like chapters of a book um, just keep it keep it short uh, and so they they can be really powerful don't At the same time, I say quotes too. Don't, um, you know, like I've studied Hebrew and Greek. I know those. I go to them occasionally, but I try not to go to them often. You probably don't hear me all the time up there. Like The Greek word is or the Hebrew word is. I will use it occasionally when I feel like it's really helpful. Um, But you don't want to, if you do that too much, people will start to think, eh, what good does it do for me to study the Bible? All I know is English. This is pointless, right? So they learn to distrust that they can't study themselves. So you want to be very careful of throwing out too much original language stuff uh, in that way. Number uh, number 12, a power of passion. It's a, we talked about it earlier, it's a sin to appear disinterested and bored with Scripture. It just is. Um, you know, you have the Holy Spirit speaking through you. Don't quench the Spirit by appearing to be completely bored and uninterested. And remember that your passion invites other people. Well, it, it has a way of people going, yeah, 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 he... He's real excited about this, I am too. I don't know what I'm excited about, but I'm excited. <laughs> it just has a way of really turning people's engine up, as it were. And so a couple of things to consider. The tone of delivery must match the tone of the message. So be careful, uh, be aware of the content situation you're in. Make sure your tone matches uh, what you're doing. Uh, never let passion drown compassion. Right? I've had some guys who are just really passionate, and, like this, and, and they're talking about, you know, and they're trying to, but they don't come across very compassionately, right? People don't relate to them at all because they don't feel like the, people, the person actually cares for them. They just, they know God, you know, they know, the word really well and they convey it, but they really don't have any love for people. You can convey that by the tone of your voice if you're always super intense. And so you have to learn to vary that down as well. Uh, passion can be expressed in many ways. You can use pauses to express passion, you can use eye contact, uh, you can speak fast, you can speak slow. You can use a loud voice, you can use a low voice. Just kind of varying that can be helpful. And I always remember this, and this is, um, I'll I'll use him as illustration because, yeah, it's fun. Um, Working with with Pastor Eddie on this, right? Um, I told him, if if everything is important, Eddie, nothing's important. Like, he had a way of, early on, he's not gotten better at it, but when I first got here, it was like, everything was really important. And it was like, I walked up and I go, I don't know what was important because everything was important. Like, you got to... You gotta vary a little bit. You gotta mix it up a little bit. You gotta tone it down at places because you just wear people out. Like they're, they, someone's they, like their ears get tired. You're like, I can't, I can't take it anymore. It's too much, too much intensity. So you gotta, you wanna be passionate. It's obviously better to have passion than have none. It's easier to rein it in, um, but you obviously don't wanna appear bored. But at the same time, don't wear people's ears out. Vary a little bit. Back off the gas pedal just a little bit um, as well. Okay, number 13. We're gonna make this. The Power of objections. It says a little bit earlier, again, assuming, anticipating objections your audience will make to the content. Uh, sometimes uh, Tim Keller calls these anticipating the defeater arguments. People are going like, Yeah, I know you said that, but you you know, but what about this situation? Or, yeah, but that doesn't work in this situation. Right? So you're you're thinking through now what are the objections people are gonna to make to this fact or this statement that I'm gonna make. Anticipating what those will be and even answering those in your sermon. Uh, it really helps, especially if you have unbelievers in your audience, if you anticipate what they may object to, right? And the thoughts that they may have toward it. That really shows, like, oh, well, they he actually is considering where I'm coming from here. He's actually thinking about, you know, I'm here. Again, you're, um, who you preach to usually will be who your audience becomes, right? So what I mean by that is is you if you never preach as if an unbeliever is there, you probably won't have any there. <laughs> so, But if you preach like they're there, they'll come and... You know, people learn. Yeah, I can bring so and so because they—he's going to anticipate them being there, and he's going to address you know their situation and where they're coming from. So, it's a, a powerful method. Uh, number fourteen: the power of transparency. Uh, research has shown that unchurched people think Christians are judgmental, hypocritical, and too involved in politics. And chances are, an unbeliever's there to listen to you preach. That's probably what they think. You don't have to say any of it. That's just automatically their assumption. And uh, and so the more you can. You can uh, let the grace of God throw you, flow through you, and be transparent. <laughs> Share some personal struggles at times, and what I mean by that, don't get up there and just have mm-hmm. a sob story of how how messed up you are <laughs> every every Sunday, and go through all of list all of your sins. It doesn't become a confession time, all right? And every Sunday, is like, oh, let's go hear the pastor confess all of his sins every Sunday. But you do need to have some transparency of like, you know what, I, I struggle with that. I, you know, I'm I, man, I'm afraid. Like, I know what that's like. I was just afraid the other day. You know, was, you, and that's good. That can be helpful so people know that you are actually a real person, not, not somebody totally different uh, in that way. So uh, number 15, the power of culture. This is thinking through the culture that you're in. And the understanding and thinking of your audience is key to delivering a life changing sermon. You just like you need to exegete the text, take it apart, you need to exegete your audience. Okay, what, how do they think? What, where, What is their world? And so a few things to think about. Know, know the age of your audience. Are they young? Are they old? Is there a mix of all of that? You know, their black their backgrounds. Are they blue collar? Are they white collar? Are they religious? Are they not? Spiritual state. Are they believers? Are they unbelievers? Is there a mix of both? Is there mature Christians? Are immature Christians in my audience? Like who, what is the state of who I'm, I'm preaching to? Are there any special needs or circumstances? Right? I brought up this Sunday... Uh, this morning, I brought up the whole you know i know you're afraid I mean the mass shootings that have taken place like I, I know that was a current event that just took place, and I wanted to kind of bring that you know, to bear upon our situation and, and our topic, and so you're gonna be aware of any special needs going on around you at that time. Uh, know what your audience reads and listens to as best you can and watches um, when I was in Hollywood, I had a church full of like actors and directors and writers, and uh, I, I probably used a movie illustration every Sunday <laughs> at some point, because that's their world. I mean, that's just, that's what they were in. And so when I used what they were in, they were like, oh, okay, you know, they were kind of <clears throat> following along. And so it can be helpful. Act 17, Paul kind of gave us that method. He was quoting their poets and the things that they were reading, things that they understood, and taking the truths that the poets who were unbelievers knew Intuitively, because they're made in the image of God, and they they know in Him, and in Him we live and move and have our being. Well, you know what? That's abs- what he said. You know, that's actually true. And Paul connects that um, to to Scripture. Uh, also, underneath that too is avoid avoid the we them language. That can be really you can really turn a lot of people off from the truth with the we the, we and them language. What I mean by that is, you know, well we do this, and those people do that, right? And then you could be speaking about pockets of Christians, or you can be speaking about Christians versus unbelievers. Either way, that's a really a tough way to communicate. People really are turned off by that when you're just like, you know, we do this, but those people over there, you know, they do that. It can be very condescending in how you say it, so you want to be very careful of that we and them language. Uh, don't expect people who don't know Christ to act like they do, so I uh, remember that. Um <clears throat> Another one surprise your audience by identifying and loving the best parts of the culture you live in. you show showing appreciation for what they live in, showing appreciation for what they they love that's good. Obviously you don't appreciate everything that <laughs> that they do or see or whatever, but expressing some appreciation for that can really relate and keep them going along with you. Remember every culture has redeeming qualities in it and it's not all it's not all garbage. There is good there. Um, another one is is use accessible and well explained vocabulary. One of the principles I always try to think of is I always say, all right, I want to remember the 18-year-old Chris Barkstow that was there that day. I showed up that day to church. I didn't know anything. So I always want to kind of remember that. Okay, be careful of my language. Not, you know what I mean by that? <laughs> not, not like cussing, but I'm saying like be careful of the words I'm using. If I use them, don't avoid words now. I'm not saying don't ever use the word propitiation because most people don't understand it. No, use it. Just make sure you explain it. Or if you're in there and you're going like, you know what? And Ezekiel says this. Well, the person who is un- the 18 year old Chris is going to go, Ezekiel? Who's that? <laughs> I don't know who that. I knew a guy named Ezekiel. Like, I know, there's some bread I had. It was Ezekiel bread. I mean, you're just completely lost. You know, they're- But we just assume everybody knows that. So you got to be always assuming. Okay, what about the person who doesn't know anything? How can I explain this in a way that they will understand it? And you'll be surprised. We always call it, call it putting the cookies in the bottom shelf so everybody can get a cookie out. You know, instead of putting it at the top shelf so only the really big adults can get cookies, let's put it at the very bottom so that everybody can get a cookie out. You know? And you'll be surprised the people who can reach the top will really appreciate getting the cookie out of the bottom. You know, it's like, oh, okay, that application or that point explanation was, I totally got it. That was really helpful. Even though it was for the person maybe who didn't really know much, you'll be surprised how much people who have been in church all whole life don't actually know in some of those things, right? So, just explain your terms. Avoid kind of the evangelical subculture jargon uh, that we like to use. That again, some people would not know. Number sixteen: power of insight and interest. This is um, this distinguishes good preaching from great mm-hmm. preaching. Right. This is where that whole study of observation, you asking questions about the text in your study, is going to come into play right here. It's going to make you interesting. You're going to be able to see things or explain things in ways that they haven't heard them. And so that's a, the that's a challenge, is to say something to them that they already know. Oh yeah, they know salvation is by grace through faith alone. Okay, well, I could say that, but let me say it a little different way. You know, say what it's not maybe. Sometimes the saying what it's not really helps them go, Oh, I haven't heard that, but I know exactly what he's talking about. Um, so a couple of principles on this. Never overstate the obvious. I just insults people's intelligence. Um... Tell them things they, they think they know in ways they've never heard it. Um, arouse curiosity. Get attention. Provoke provoke thought in them by asking questions. Become an interesting person by reading. A um, good thing to ask is you ask yourself if what you are communicating is flat and boring because it's stated in a way that just does not tap the curiosities of people. Like, am I, say, am I saying this in a way that actually taps the curiosity of people, or am I just saying something they are, oh, I already know? They could get up here and say the same thing I'm saying right now. There's really no, there's really nothing I'm giving them that's new. Now, obviously, we're not creating, we're not up there to be new in terms of creating some new doctrine, but man, we want to say it and package it in a way that is new. A way that they I, I see what he's saying, I've never, never heard of it that way, never thought of it that way. Uh, number 17, the power of mannerisms Uh, remember that you're not preaching on the radio probably you're probably preaching live before people and so how you say what you say or the way which you use your mannerisms will have a big impact not just your words but how you say them so think about hand movements eye contact facial expressions um make a good eye uh, good eye contact one of the things we did it this used to be um sort of an inside thing but you would you you would get up there and and all of us we had we called it a Preaching fraternity—it was a bunch of pastors, and we would get together talk about preaching. And then we all kind of have like challenges to each other. Sometimes you just, hey, next Sunday, you know, right before they get up there, we go to church and be like, you, you gotta, you gotta say the word popcorn. Oh. So you get up there, and they gotta figure out how to bring it popcorn into illustration. But one of the things we used to do uh, that was kind of fun—we would, um, we, we would, we would do this, and we'd say. Stare somebody down until they look away from you. you know, so you just start preaching, you just start looking at them, you just keep going. And you almost have like a staring contest until they finally look away. And you're like, yes, okay, I got them. You know, it's like, but but it's just, it is one of those things, like just, just looking at them in the eye. It's okay. Let them feel uncomfortable. But I would say, make them look away first before you look away. Right? Just that weight of that stare and looking at them in the eye has a way of really carrying the weight, especially if you're trying to bring a point home that's really important. Sit with it for a little bit now. Don't particularly pick out a person. You know, I know this guy. I'm gonna get him, right? No, you want know, to be careful of not isolating a particular person. But you know, vary your eye contact around uh, from different people. Um, be natural. Don't try to mimic someone else's mannerisms. You know, just be yourself. Uh, identify your nervous gestures and stop making them. It's hard. I have them. I always have to work on them on on what I how I use my hands or or whatever. Sometimes I said this before. I think if you record yourself on video and then just fast forward it, you'll see what what you do. That was I always remember that one because I I think I did this number too many times and fast forward. It looks like I'm flying away. It's like this. I'm always going like, you you gotta do this. And you fast forward it for like 30 minutes and it's just constant like a a bird flopping, flapping their wings. Um, Smile a lot. Smile a lot. It's a way of relating to people. I'm not saying um, never vary your expressions, but smiling can be helpful. Don't always appear despondent or angry (laughs) at people. Um, Adding a smile will be helpful. Uh, The larger your audience, the larger your gestures. So if you're on Sunday over here with a big old stage and there's a broad kind of audience all around you, your gestures need to be a little bit bigger. It's just like if you're on stage, Bruce, you know this with acting. You're on stage, you're exaggerating your expressions because that guy way back in the back can't see him or it looks really small to him. And so you kind of want to, depending on the house, how big the audience is, um, be careful of being uh, too tied to your notes. Sometimes it's better to kind of load up what you're going to say and then turn it up and look at them and give it to them. Load back up, give it to them. It's kind of a good good method as well with that. Number 18, the power of voice. Again, the voice is one of the most powerful instruments God has given to us. If you're going to preach, it is the most powerful uh, instrument. And so a couple of things, practical things here, is learn to to take care of your voice. This would be like really, really concrete examples here, but um, get a good night's sleep before you're going to teach or preach something on scripture. Um, uh, We have practices avoiding dairy, uh, avoiding carbonated beverages before you preach, avoid screaming, yelling. If you're a big sports fan, college football fan, you may not want to watch the game on Saturday. If you're going to preach the next day, right, this is, just consideration so your voice is not raw. Uh, wash your hands often so you don't get sick. It's it's really hard for people to listen to you when you're hacking and coughing in a microphone or sneezing, blowing your nose. Just try to keep yourself healthy uh, in that way. Um, having water with you can be helpful too. You, so you're not constantly like, that will drive people nuts. You know, If you get the dry mouth thing going, it really gets rough. Uh, Vary intensity, projection, pitch, and rate to avoid monotony. Don't, don't practice Chinese water torture with people. Drop, drop, drop. So the whole sermon is this, this, this. You know, it just keeps going. You want to speed up at moments. You want to slow down at other moments. Uh, use, again, pause effectively. Let your audience kind of marinate on the truth that's there. Um, recognize the unique features of your voice as well. And understand how to best use them. It's best accomplished by asking other people. Ask them, "Hey, how do I? Am I screechy? <laughs> do I get too high pitched? Um, you know, am I am I kind of just just really too boring in terms? I'm just my, my rate is really really low. Um, these are all all things. Identify your verbal bridges and eradicate them. Ones like uh and um. Okay, okay, okay. You see? You see? You see? You see? Yeah. <coughs> there, there's, yeah, there's certain ones, and I would take little sticky notes when I was first doing this, and I'd put them on my pulpit where I was preaching to remind myself, okay, avoid that word. And I'd catch myself going, um uh, like oh i got to stop that. So I still do it today. There's still habits I get into with that too. Number 19, power of clarity. Uh, this again, just you want to obviously be clear. Write yourself clear. So again, we're going back to our manuscript Uh, Ask yourself, how easy would it be to take notes on my sermon? How easy would it be to take notes on this, if they were listening to it? Uh, Prepare your notes in a way that are easy for your eyes to grab. I told you on mine, I do everything digitally. But I go through, I'll bold certain things, I'll italicize certain... When I ask a question, it's in italics in my notes. Uh, When I want to make sure I get that point, I highlight it in yellow or red. So just kind of, whatever way works for you, just... Play around with it. Change font sizes. Sometimes you have a bigger font size, smaller font size. My verses are in smaller font size. My content's in a bigger font size. It's varied for every person, but just play around with that. Don't just give, just type out no spacing, just a long document, and expect to get up there and present that. It's going to be hard for you just, especially if you're going to look up, you're going to look down and be like, oh no, I don't know where I was. I have no idea what, what the last thing I said on there. So space it. You Get some appropriate spacing. Highlight italics, bold. Whatever else draw draw like windows in the side if you're gonna do an illustration or, or bring an application point. Uh, finish your sermon your sermon before the the night of of what you're preaching or teaching. The early you finish, I do mine a week and a half early, so I always finish ten days before. And then I will edit over those ten days based on <clears throat> I maybe mean, you just read something in my Bible that really informs or illustrates. Oh, that would be good to bring in or or a cultural situation may happen. Oh, I wanna bring that into play. Give yourself time. Finish beforehand. Don't wait till the night of. And obviously, rehearsing your sermon before you get up there can be helpful too. Lastly, perfect time 728. Here we go. The power of integrity. One of the most dangerous pitfalls. And this is an obvious, maybe an obvious one to you, but I wanted to end on this one. You, you got to walk with Jesus if you're going to preach about Jesus. I mean, you can get away with it for a little bit. But, it, but the integrity of your own heart will eventually catch, catch up to you you got the spirit of God in you, you'll start feeling the weight and the guilt of, I'm not living up to even what I'm saying. And so you always want to remember that. 1 Timothy 4.16, keep watch on yourself and the teaching. Watch what you're teaching, but you've got to, he says in order, keep watch of yourself first, and then your teaching. You've got to watch yourself. You've got to continue, continually, it doesn't mean you'll be perfect, but nothing will undermine uh, a man in his ministry more than hypocritical discrepancy between what he says and how he does. Right? Um, so you want to do that uh, I'll I'm, give I'm, I'm this little quote I thought this is really good this is a quote from this is from Christianity Day back in 1961 okay Floyd Schaefer wrote this he said uh, talking talk about the preacher make him a minister of the word fling him into his office tear the office sign from the door and nail on the sign study take him off the mailing list you can, this gets a little dated because it's 1961 take him off the mailing list lock him up with his books and his typewriter and his bible Slam him down on his knees before the texts, broken hearts, and the lives of a flock and the holy God. Force him to be the one man in our communities who knows about God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Let him come out only when he is bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Require him to have something to say before he dare break silence. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Give him a Bible and tie him in his pulpit and make him preach the word of the living God. Form a choir. And raise the chant and haunt him with it day and night, sir. We wish to see Jesus. When at long last he dares to say the pulpit, ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not, then command him not to come back until he has read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up and warn and forlorn and say, "Thus saith the Lord." And when he is burned out by the flaming word that course through him, when he is consumed at last by the fiery grace blazing through him, and when he. Who, who was privileged to translate the truth of God to man is finally translated from earth to heaven, then bear him away gently, blow a muted trumpet, and lay him down softly, place a two-edged sword in his coffin, and raise a tune triumphant, for he was a brave soldier of the word, and ever he died, he had become a spokesman for his God. I love that quote. 1961, right? Oh, that slam before his typewriter. That's a good principle. Uh, well, men... Uh, Thank you for, for kind of bearing with me and, and going through uh, content. I know there's a lot of information tonight. Um, our goal the next two times together is just to kind of just help refine some skills for you. Uh, don't feel like you got to, you know, don't be too nervous about it. Don't feel like you got to have it all together. None of us have it all together. Our goal is to kind of help each other out. I'll have some printouts of some of the things I've talked about. Um, actually, I'll put it, I may have already put it on, if I didn't, I'll check. But I'll give you kind of the, the little two-page paper that I'll have everybody will get. So you who are preaching will know what to expect. Here are the things we're going to evaluate you on. Here are the things we're going to give you feedback on. So you can make sure to think through those aspects. Okay? And the order is there um, on on, um, the hub as well. Any any other questions? Yes. Um, Know your audience.